It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the podcast where experts slowly and patiently explain all the things they've been telling us for ages, but we were too busy getting angry about Donald Trump and Brexit to take in. So today we're going to get trains explained to us by Nicole Budstuber, a researcher. Hello, Nicole. Hello. And also we have Sarah Morgan, who has written Not Going Out on BBC One and The Wilson Save the World on Radio 4 and hosts the excellent podcast The Fear. And she is also a comedy writer. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> I've done all those comedy things and I am a comedy writer. And you are a comedy <laughs> writer. Yes, well, just in case people thought you were like maybe some Not going sort of out the very editor. serious, hyper-realistic documentary about domestic life on BBC One. Yeah. <laughs> and we have another comedy writer. It's Joel Morris, who is probably best known for the Ladybird Books for Grown Ups. It doesn't say so here, but you've done. Sc- I know you're from Screenwhite. Yeah, it's amazing. Charlie Brooker stuff and, and Philomena Kunk. And also, you write Kunk. <laughs> well, Philomena Kunk is one of our babies. Um, and because no one gets to the end of podcasts, I'm going to ask you now if there's anything that you would like to plug. Because you also have Rule of Three podcast, which is a great podcast. Yes, which you've been on, which is Cooler Working Comedy, talking about their favourite funny thing. And Sarah, is there anything you would like to plug? I'll plug the Fear podcast, uh, which is a podcast where funny people, comedians come on and talk about what they're scared of in a judgment-free environment. Uh, Joel's done it, Danielle's done it. It turned out I was scared of talking about fear in a, in a judgment-free environment. <laughs> Completely clammed up. Nicole, um, no, I just write regularly about transport, so if you follow me on Twitter, then that will be What's your Twitter handle? Um, it's just my name, so Nicole Badstuber. Cool. So, right... Let's talk about trains, Nicole. Why are the trains in the UK so buggered? Um, So the UK decided to privatise its train network about 20 years ago, the first one to really do so. So um, you may know that actually most of the railway network was built by private companies, but they then ran out of cash, got nationalised. In the 1990s, John Major wanted to prove that he was um, even more of neoliberal then Margaret Thatcher and decided to privatise the railway network. And what that means is that it's now fairly fragmented. So instead of having one institution in charge of running the trains and looking after the track and building new railways, that's all subdivided. So the track is run by Network Rail. It used to be a private company. There were a lot of train crashes, then they brought it um, back as a non-for-profit. And then it got turned into a public institution And then the rest of the network, all of the services and brands that you will know, they bid to run those services every five to seven years. So the government puts out a tender. Basically, it's all quite messy. And we can go into a bit more detail how risk doesn't align well Um, (laughs) and, and all of that. Joel, have you got a question? Obviously, the railway network was built by sort of private people uh, just rushing to take advantage of it. 
bearing in mind that people still use trains and the trains are massively overcrowded and the more and more people are commuting and moving around and things like that, could there be another railway boom? Do we have enough top hats for there to be another? Could people, those both those stations that beaching closed down, if, if suddenly someone went, okay, well, we could, we could build infrastructure there, bearing in mind that the government's not going to do that necessarily, is there money in building railways in the private sector? Generally, there's no money in transport because the benefits of transport are quite widespread. There's a lot of social benefits and it's really difficult to capture them directly through ticket sales. So, for instance, the government may get more tax return for more people having good jobs here in London, but not necessarily be able to recoup that by selling them a £50 day return ticket from the suburbs. So, so the, the benefits are spread around the whole of the society. So it's generally a really bad idea to put public transport in the hands of the private sector, which is why we've done it. Brilliant. <laughs> good, good that that's cleared up. Yeah. Um, Sarah, have you got Well, that question was just like, well, who gets that 50 quid then? But it's just... Just Richard Branson? Um, so it's quite, it's quite complicated. So um, as I touched on, there's the track and there's the train companies. Oh. So the train companies get their income from the ticket sales. Some of the tickets are regulated, some of them are unregulated. The sort of... Um, easy way about dividing that up is that the commuter railway tickets are generally regulated and the long distance ones are unregulated and they have a pricing structure a bit more like an airline would so your easy jet the, the closer you get to the day the more expensive it is and they will collect that and then they have to pay track access fees so they pay network rail to use that railway infrastructure in theory that was how they wanted the entire track to be funded and improved and it would be maintained properly. But there has been a push to keep those track access charges low, which makes it look like the private company is making quite a lot of money. So it's literally just going in someone's bank account, isn't yeah. it? Okay. Wow. I don't know if this is true, so you will be able to answer this. So when all the stuff was going on with Southern Trains and the, there was all the strikes and the trains weren't running properly and there was this call for Govia to be stripped of their franchise. Mm -hmm. Now, I read that the reason they couldn't strip Govia of their franchise was there was, like, there was only one other company that was bidding and that would then turn it into a monopoly. Is that... I mean, I don't understand the franchise system at all. So if maybe you yeah, can explain it. Yeah, of course. Um, so basically how it works is the network across Britain is divided up into chunks, what you can imagine as regional monopolies. Every f five to seven years, they go out to the market and they say, hey, guys, who wants to pay us to run that network? And then you have a bunch of companies bidding, all the names you will know. A lot of them are subsidiaries of other European nation states railway system and that's, that's annoying that, that's sensible isn't it because obviously we know that nationalising railways doesn't work which is why other countries are allowed to run out this, ah. but, well, yeah. <laughs> but um, on the flip side they are the experts in running a railway they've got proven track record of being able to do that and they're interested in making money off the British system to feed back into their bank accounts back at home so they'll bid and usually they pick the lowest bid and then that company is in charge of running that service to some stipulated frequency and on certain days so that there will, a government will say you have to run Sunday services and then in return the private company pays the government some money and pays Network Rail some money for using that track. We've seen recently again on the East Coast mainline which is the railway up to Edinburgh that the private company has handed that back to government earlier than they were supposed to. Often the way that the agreements between the private company and the government are structured mean that the private company doesn't pay 
the government for the privilege of using that railway until quite late in the contract. So if they halfway through decide actually it looks like it's quite risky, our passenger numbers that we thought were going to happen were over-optimistic, it makes commercial sense for them to hand it back. And in recent years, there's not really been the disincentives um, for them to do so. They haven't had fines, for instance. So how come? Because the East Coast Line was... um it was run by a private company and then it went back into, it was nationalised, so it was East Coast Rail. And it put money back into the Treasury. Yes, £1 billion. Pounds. So it was making a profit for the Treasury. So why then did they allow Virgin Trains to take, if it was making money for for the taxpayer, why did they then let Virgin Trains take it over? And then why did Virgin, why were Virgin Trains not able to make any money? So my interpretation would be that the choice to put it back out to the private market was an ideological one. The Conservative government, the one that privatised the entire system and the one in power in 2015, they want to prove that the private market knows best, essentially. So it was an ideological choice, even though East Coast was a and, you know, a great example of the public sector running it well. And we also had a lot of employees who wanted to work for it being a public sector employee and make sure the railway worked rather than a private sector. Then basically what happens, it went out to tender again, um, the same model as before, and Virgin and Stagecoach together um, bid for it and they had the lowest bid based on the over-optimistic passenger numbers which didn't materialise. Okay, and so and now it has gone back to public ownership. Yes. And is the plan of the government to then, once it's making money again, <laughs> to send it back out to tender? Well, I guess we'll see who's in government government at the time if uh, a good answer <laughs> or if we have any government oh yeah we probably don't have i mean they're all eating rats <laughs> all different than the future yeah i'd like to ask about hs2 it just seems so fundamentally stupid and pointless. Surely a grown-up can tell me that there's actually a really good point to it and it's really a good idea. Yeah, so there are arguments <laughs> for it, I think. There are arguments for it. We've started. Beyond money and evil, is there actually a point? To, is it actually good? Is it actually a thing? Well, I think you can say that there's arguments for it, but going back to your point, mm-hmm. I think most importantly, it was a plan that was sort of in a dusty drawer on a shelf somewhere mm-hmm. and we had a government that thinks that by building large infrastructure projects you sort of prove that you're investing in the country. Right. So it was sort of um, where they had a plan or they had a project in mind and then tried to justify it. Wow. And so if you look back, you'll see that the justification for High Speed 2 varies quite a lot every year, every right. few months. I think the strongest one is increasing capacity on that line. Right. The argument quite early on was about time savings and in particular saving 10 minutes for business passengers on their trip to Ooh. Birmingham. 10 minutes! Yeah. Exactly. But then the Euston station is so poorly designed that actually all the four also predicted that people would be waiting 20 to 25 minutes to get on a Victoria oh, no. Line oh, train. God. So the whole thing wasn't really stacking up. Well, I read, I read uh, just a few days ago, they've dug up, is it 60,000 bodies they've dug up now because they built dug up the cemetery in front of Euston Station? Which is, if yeah. no one has seen the film Poltergeist, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. happens when you build things on burial grounds yeah, is not, not good. good. Well, they've built a huge taxi <laughs> rank there now. So I took some students there just two oh, days God. ago to show them about interchange design 
between different modes and how it's good, good examples and bad. I was actually really surprised to see that it was a worse example than even I had oh, remembered. Wow. Is, it, so is the problem that Britain's too small? So a high-speed train in Britain knocks 10 minutes off a journey, whereas if it was a bigger country, there's a justification for it. Because obviously the, the, the things you should be spending that money on in transport are obviously Wales could do with some public transport of some sort, buses. Buses, right. So that's my go-to is you can really improve people's lives, their access to jobs and opportunities and tackle the dependence on the car by just building, or not even building, by just providing good bus services, integrated bus services that link up where the services are coordinated so you can interchange easily and that would cost a fraction of what we're investing. I, I read somewhere recently there's no long-term bus strategy There is no long-term strategy, no. It's the only mode that does not have one. It's the the, the mega bus situation where they realise that people will happily pay seven quid to be on a bus for eight hours if you put really good Wi-Fi in it. Yeah. Because yeah. people just want to work. So yeah. if they don't care if they're in an office or well, if they're... I, I, they'll, I, they'll happily be on a bus for seven quid for eight hours if it's if it's if if you can read your phone and watch a film. If, if, if they make chill, any yeah. form of transport a shed on wheels where I can just quietly go I mean, I'd, I'd happily take 11 days to get to Birmingham <laughs> if the Wi-Fi was good yeah I remember getting I got the um, overnight the Megabus gold from mm. Edinburgh down to London because it was only £11 yeah. and not only do you get a nice little bed to sleep in but you get a free muffin in the morning oh but if you can if you're as you say if your office is a thing on wheels which if you're in Birmingham and you need to be in London and you can work the whole way there but that, I mean yes yeah, so maybe that's we're, the maybe that's loudly agreeing with each other why is Wi-Fi so bad on trains then because it's the one thing that is absolutely terrible on a train <laughs> I carry my own Wi-Fi hub with me on trains because I know it won't work that's probably a sensible yeah I can't answer you why it's so bad <laughs> I, tr- I my ambition was to work on the train to Cambridge every morning it's not working but I mean it is but not using the Wi-Fi I think it's to do with the speed of the train and just ha- being poor Wi-Fi is sort of an afterthought why has Crossrail taken so long so Crossrail is a project that to put a train line from East London to West London and it's still not completed and how long is it is it 20 years it's been rumbling on for well, the first concrete plans, I think, go back to the 70s. Oh, my God. I mean, um, but it has changed since then. Yeah. So I think that if you sort of think when was Parliament deciding on this, it's more sort of around the 2008 mark where the bills went through. First off, Crossrail had its budget cut by $1 billion, which um, TfL's solution to that was to spread out the contractors essentially and push out and when it was going to open by a year now um, there are a lot of signalling problems so the sort of tunnelling and all of that is done a lot of the stations are already mostly finished but it's signalling and that's sort of what yeah it's mean? a really abstract thing um, Crossbell is basically using legacy infrastructure so already train lines once it gets out of that tunnel on either end of London mm-hmm. so it has a signalling system within the tunnel and then a different one on either end and the ones on either end sort of the legacy ones because those are the ones that are already being used. I love that it's delayed due to signal failure. (laughs) (laughs) This is blowing my mind in the sense that you get to a signal... And it's either go or stop, and then you've got another one. I mean, I don't... Aren't you intended to How hard can it be? How hard can it be? train? I bumped into a, a mate of mine's uncle was working as one of the contractors building on, on Crossrail. We bumped into him in a hard hat in the middle of town. And I surprised it's taking so long. And he said, every time a building wanted repairs done, they went to government and said, your trains are going to ruin all our wires. So the government then had to shore up everyone's foundations and everything. So every private landlord was saying... 
while you've got the money for this crossrail, can you repair our plumbing and things? Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. But generally in the defence of these sort of large projects, so Crossrail or High Speed 2, these are mega infrastructure projects and there's so many assumptions that go on in the forecast, in how you're going to plan that, that it's sort of expected that these are projects are going to be over budget and overrun. It's just sort of the sort of level of overrun and over budget. So some of the really iconic ones like the Sydney Opera House was like 2,000% over budget. Um, and People are always in opera. If Crossrail is 10% over budget and a year delayed, I think the benefits will still accrue to everyone. I'm sure the house owners who've bought places along the line yeah. are probably fairly frustrated, but hopefully it will still work out. And I was going to ask something about that about using using sort of legacy lines and things because obviously the hard thing to do is track I imagine and tunnels and things just having a guess though aren't you I'm having a guess (laughs) I imagine imagine, if I thought I was going to build a train network tomorrow I'd go I could probably build a train with a box and some wheels a track need a track first that's (laughs) the bit that's going to be hard certainly around near me there are a couple of places that are really badly served for public transport and I go past them on the train and I watch people commuting in on buses really struggling thinking just add another station there it adds one minute to my journey how much does it cost to build a station and why does that never happen stations are the largest cost of crossrail really yeah because the the property value of that space also you actually have to build quite cavernous spaces it may look like it's just a small tunnel and everything small but actually once crosswell opens you'll see how much larger all these spaces are in comparison to all the tube lines we're used to that were built by the victorians who were trying to penny pinch every corner so yeah the, the stations really are the most expensive thing so i'm um, so i can't ask for one nearer my house <laughs> Well, I think it depends like how far out you, you're living, how built up it is around there. I think there are, are cases where on some of the sort of commuter lines, Transport for London and the mayor have been advocating to have sort of an overgroundization of it. So to have a high frequency service on there and have some infill stations, especially up towards the northeast and Tottenham. And so it might be more easy there. Probably not so easy to put one between anywhere within zone one or two. If you're enjoying Any Stupid Questions, why not rate and review? Wait till it's finished. Don't just stop halfway because that also affects our advertising, I think. But when you get to the end of the podcast, rate and review it. Thank you very much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If I can take the conversation back onto the nationalisation of the railways, yes. because that seems to be a thing that a lot of people get quite obsessed with. Should, as someone who is a researcher into transport, do you think that we should renationalise the railways and would that be an easy thing to achieve? The Labour Party has a manifesto pledge and they want to bring it back in-house. The easiest way to do that is to basically take over the franchises as they expire. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'd have to pay out to the private companies for their lost income. I think it's but they're important. not making any income. That's really easy. <laughs> you make money off that. But they're using forecasts and that what they're expecting <laughs> they're to lying. earn. And, yeah. <laughs> so I think the sort of topic of nationalisation, there is actually quite a few different um, ways that you could do it and what does that actually mean? So we could bring those railway services back into public operation. Network Rail is already back in public ownership. But to recreate a complete monopoly as British Rail was is actually quite difficult. And one of the reasons why that is difficult is, and we're still bound by EU rail policy regulation. Ah. Um, And basically the EU Commission saw Britain privatise its railway in the 1990s and thought, hey guys, that looks like a great idea. Everyone in the EU should be doing this. And even though there's been a lot of resistance from in particular countries whose subsidiaries now run British railway services, such as France and Germany and the Netherlands, um, they've been pushing back um, and don't want to divide their network up. But the EU wants you basically to split train and track and have two different accounting institutions in charge of both of them. Have they not seen what happened here? Yeah, I mean... And so this, it's like Europe's a really stupid idea. I'm really glad we're out. But that's what's interesting because obviously the Labour Party and now it has a more left-wing leadership are obviously anti-EU for, for the purpose of ring-fencing and nationalisation. But I didn't realise that. So if we... If we were to stay in the EU, would we we wouldn't be able to renationalize everything. So we could we could bring network rail into public ownership. We yep. could bring running the railway services back into public ownership. Yep. What we can't do is recreate a monopoly. Basically, what the EU says is that you have to have one organization in charge of the track and one organization in charge of the services. And the reason for that is that there should be open access so that a company who thinks that we are under providing services, say, between London and Hull, can say, hey, Network Rail, I'd really like to hire some of your railway space and run these services. And it is supposed to be able to do that without having the conflict of interest of being like, oh, no, actually, we want to run some more rails or you're going to take away some of our passengers. And for that reason, he wants the track to be separate from the services. But if the track and the services are both owned by the state, just under different names, is that allowable? so, So that is the sort of fudge that all of the most of the other European member states currently have. I'm not even an expert in anything and I've just figured out how to get through the EU's loophole. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, seriously, how, how do, it, like, using the example of London to Hull, if, uh, you know, uh, Stelios from EasyJet wanted to just go, I'm going to do 20 quid London to Hull all the time, could you do that as a train line? Could, could someone do that here? Is that is how hard would that be? Yes, yeah, so that's something called open access. Mm-hmm. So that's an open access operator. The sort of uh, catch is that you also have to prove that you're not taking away a whole bunch of passengers 
who were previously going to be using the other franchise. What? So because the, the that when, when, else. <laughs> when the private yeah. company, <laughs> I'm not when, releasing this film because it would stop people going to see another film. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-competition. Yeah, surely. I'm not selling this Mars bar. People won't buy Snickers anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is that when they bid to run a chunk of the railway system, they didn't have this competitor trying to run these other services, and they built their forecasts on being like a regional monopoly. Wow, um, not fair. Yeah. That's broadly how how it works. When people talk about you know private companies running things, and it's like it's all about the entrepreneurial yeah. spirit, and it's about the 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 company doing it, and you know winning. Yeah. Customers, but if it's like, oh no, but they're, they're special customers that they definitely have to have. <laughs> yeah. And if anybody tries to take their customer, I mean, that it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me in any. Oh. It's sort of half competition and half not competition. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fudge, isn't it? Yes. It's a sort of very over regulated space to ensure I th- that private companies would even be interested in bidding to run them. So you're sort of guaranteeing quite a lot of things. Is this because running a railway? service is a terrible idea that's very unattractive to private investment. So, so you've tried yeah. to make it as attractive as possible by saying, but when you come, it's a special playground where there won't be any other kids and yeah. you won't have to and really fight them. if you're Richard Branson, you can have funny toilets that talk to you oh, and God. all that. Yeah. So logically, it makes sense for this to be run by the state because it doesn't earn enough money. But ideologically, that's why the Conservative Party put it out to privatisation. So it's just how they feel ideologically. It doesn't even make sense on paper. Yeah, so it goes back to my point earlier about how transport services, we can't really expect them to make money. And you can see that sort of with a lot of the new entrants to the market in the last few years, so all the dockless bike shares, which have disappeared again, the <laughs> Ubers, which are still highly subsidised by venture capital, which will also disappear if that subsidy disappeared. Essentially, running... Transport service is not a profitable business. You're not going to make a lot of money. It's infrastructure, not business. Yes, it's infrastructure. It enables you to do other things. And it's not a good that you just... Okay, some people in some circumstances may take a train up to Edinburgh for the enjoyment of being on a train. But in most cases, it's a means to an end. And when we start treating transport as something to desire for just desire's sake, then we sort of get ourselves into trouble. A luxury rather than a... That's fascinating. I would argue that government is in the position where it can capture some of these widespread benefits, which spread quite far, but then also subsidise the transport system because it can see, oh, well, it enables people to get to work more easily. It means that people aren't stuck in traffic because they can get a train. And the government's the only person in that position. Is it the consequences of failure of a transport system are felt more keenly by a government than they are by a private company? So basically, if your transport system fails, as a private company, you go, well, we've already got the ticket money anyway. Whereas if the transport system fails and you're a government, no one gets to work, people vote you out. There's, there's, There's direct problems if you run it badly well it's sort of too big to fail or it's something that government isn't really going to let fail and so therefore it's not really suitable as something to put out to the private market because ultimately you're going to be in a position where you have to step in even if they said okay we're going to stop services tomorrow maybe you'd sort of see how it goes for a few days but by the end of the week you're going to have to be there because people are relying on that service what is now making me think what 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 should the private sector be running i'm just thinking nothing yeah. <laughs> we so, need everything. You mentioned buses earlier, and is this why buses in why the bus services across the country are so terrible? Because they're run privately and they don't make any money, so people just stop running buses. Yeah. So buses also went through this sort of 
privatisation and deregulation. And it's something we don't talk about at all no. in comparison to the railway network. And yet it's um, even, I, I would say, possibly even more of a mess or at least less coordinated. And that's essentially because as a private company, you're only going to run the routes which are profitable, which generally sort of mm. on the main thoroughfares during peak hours on commuter routes. And you're not going to provide those socially necessary routes so that people in more rural areas or less profitable areas are still connected to the network. And because often there's different companies competing in the same city, they're not going to coordinate their services so that you could get one bus and then interchange and get the other bus. So there are um, there's the Bus Services Act of 2017 that came into force, which is going to give six mayoral combined authorities similar powers to what London has. So London is the only place that didn't get deregulated in the 1980s under the sort of same ideology as the railway network. So uh, the buses in London are are publicly owned? So they are privately operated, but they are regulated. Outside of London, there's no sort of overall strategy of what routes to run. Mm -hmm. But in London, Transport for London will say, hey, we want routes between these places. Private sector, what is your best offer to run that? And so then it's sort of like having an employee versus having freelancers. And do you think that if the bosses were re-nationalised, that would help i never thought about renational because like you say it's always about trains but buses do you think it's because um rich people get trains and poor people mm. get buses yeah, if you've never got a bus in your life why would you even also when, when you when you go outside london if you're if you're a london or you go outside Bristol, if you're a big city thing and you go outside and you get to the railway station where you're going you get an uber or a taxi <laughs> from you don't wait for the local bus so you never go on a regional bus unless you are someone who lives in a region so the people who make decisions i suppose never ever see buses yeah um, so I think the highest income band makes a third of the trips that like the middle income band and the lowest income band makes 10 times as many bus trips a year than anyone it's else. It's very hard to get someone to empathise with something they've literally never experienced. If you've never been on a bus, then how are you going to... It's yeah. like trying to get someone in Westminster to say, can you imagine a room without wood panelling? <laughs> can you imagine going to a school without wood panelling? Yeah. There's also there's a romance to trains, isn't there, which is why we all talk about trains and not buses, where there's a... Yeah, you, you know, no matter what, what your background, there's something very romantic about trains chugging across Britain and how we can sort of get yeah. excited about our infrastructure. And again, why you say people, Harry people want go to Hogwarts on a megabus, but, but it's the reason <laughs> why know. Richard Branson wanted a rail network. He said there's no money in it for him. He gets to put his face all over it, his name all over it, talking he toilets. Put his face blah, on the blah, blah. front of the trains, like he Thomas should, the Tank he Engine. With a big, lovely, lovely, I think he, could, didn't he try that with a beard on a plane? Then once, you could kick but, them, yeah, on the way out when you're annoyed by the toilets. But that maybe that's how we save things: is if a private company actually gets to plaster their stuff all over a bus <laughs> or a train I don't know Can I ask and I don't know if you know this why have we got such a complicated train pricing system is it to fleece tourists <laughs> It's a result of the sort of fragmented structure that we have, that you have a lot of different private companies actually providing services between two destinations. You have regulated, unregulated, but in a part, you also want them to pay a more expensive fare for what? Because I went to Nottingham, I went from York to Nottingham, and uh, I looked and ticket return, day return was 50 quid. But, and it meant a change at Sheffield. But when I looked at a, like a return, York to Sheffield, Sheffield to Nottingham, it was only £30. How? The split Why? ticket websites, I've How only just discovered work? them. They are 
I honestly, is, I could plug anything. It is a split. The split ticket websites are astonishing for how much money you save. Why? Why do they not sell me the cheapest ticket? Why? Why? How can that even be allowed? That... Well, I think it's somewhere that we really need to start regulating mm. it properly it, because we're not it, providing the best service to the customer. Is it pricing at the margin? That thing of going, if you're prepared to pay, they, they will do well off someone who is prepared to pay fifty quid and their business to check expenses. How what those two things are? Because no one does. Because no everyone's busy. Yeah, you well, don't think to go. I'll go on tickety split or whatever and see what. You I'm want to sort of, you want to I'm give this to, to a, or nothing, but, like, uh, yeah. but you want to give it to a robot to do because it's so complicated yeah. that humans can't do it. You need an algorithm or an app to do it. Yeah, but should it be like that? No. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and it sort of goes back to the point like transport shouldn't be there to sort of fleece the passenger yeah. or to make as much money. You want to get from one place to the other and. Also, we should be thinking about we want to encourage people to get places by train rather than people starting driving, especially mm, with climate change sure. imperatives oh, geez, or yeah. flight. You know, all these cheap flights have really had a detrimental impact on climate change. But just something I want to add just before we finish is that I don't think all these problems are going to be solved by nationalising it <laughs> and that we can... Oh, you promise. <laughs> I do feel like we've been shouting at you for half an hour. I'm so sorry. Like, because we're just going, oh, everything you said. And it's like, genuinely, you're just being really interesting like and i think we can make improvements in the shorter term just by regulating things better or getting better agreements between private sector companies and the public sector and if we think of transport in a more strategic way that it's a means to an end rather than a means in itself i think we've got time for one more question each what's the right sort of snow for trains (laughs) (laughs) actually that's an engineering question that's not Um, i've got a better one Uh, one one that's more about rail networks what the hell is up with the Gare du Nord because when you get on at St Pancras to get the Eurostar it's a cathedral of travel and you feel like you're Hercule Poirot and you get on it's amazingly romantic and there's cocktail bars and it's brilliant and you get to the other end and there's a guy with a machine gun <laughs> and he ushers you out into what looks like the back end of Tottenham Court Road and goes go away and they don't like you and you queue up like in a, in a downtable it's the most hostile is it because the French hate us? I can't answer that question. <laughs> it's the weirdest disparity between the British because usually British is the so worst is the worst. So but you go it's it's the one bit where Britain appears to have fallen in love with trains mm. and the French who you always think, Oh, they've got the lovely All oh, the people faster. queued up at nine and three quarters. It's oh, so romantic so... and brilliant. And you get to the other end and, and it's it, the French have got this sort of attitude of sort of saying, Yeah, which is this station. Well maybe that attitude is why their trains work better. <laughs> maybe it's the functional stoicism. Are we romantics? Is it is it the fault of Pete Waterman? Less two pound <laughs> orangina's at WH Smith. Oh, but it is no. a more recent thing. I mean the US side you did used to go to Waterloo, which is quite uh, grim then. Yeah. yeah. you used to go there and then I get shot Waterloo. by Jason Bourne. It wasn't <laughs> What's your least favourite train station? Train yeah, it would station. be Euston Station. You hate you, yeah. Because well, they dug up 60,000 bodies. Well, that, and <laughs> I just think all the interchanges are really bad. It's oh, really terrible, depressing. There's like crowded, confused signage everywhere. It's not Have clear you where you're supposed of, to go. Have you seen film of it opening? When it was opened by either the Queen or Princess Margaret or something, there's a beautiful, it's 1966, it's sort of high swinging 60s and it looks like a Swiss airport it looks absolutely beautiful it's all beautiful signage and things and obviously since then because no one really likes modernist buildings it's been kind of left in a way they sort of they did up King's Cross and things and it's really weird if you look at the footage of it opening you go that's what you thought it was you thought it was going to be really sort of international jet set man from uncle swinging 
uh, futuristic station, and it just doesn't look like it now. But they could awful. improve it. I mean, they could get rid of all those weird shops in front of it, yeah. where the bus station is, and they could have maybe not put a not taxi a, rack yeah. on on the only green space in the area. Could have left the Euston Arch in. So exactly. many burger places. <laughs> like you want one burger place, eight different <laughs> kinds of burgers. At Actually, any it's, point a, at it's an odd station. metaphor for for why you shouldn't let rampant capitalism into yeah. railway stations. Isn't Can it? I ask a really stupid question? Oh yeah. It's really, can you flush the toilet on a train in a station anymore? Because oh. I know some people who still think you can't. <laughs> I think you can. I don't think it goes onto the track anymore. Oh, I still don't. Yeah, I, don't. I, grew up, I had basic rules. Elbows off the table. Don't, don't not while the, the train is standing in the station. No. But it, does, it, it doesn't go on the floor. Surely it doesn't. It, it, it just doesn't. seems like that wouldn't be practice anymore with people walking spray, on the track. It sprayed into the air. <laughs> That's I, it goes. Know, I genuinely never I flush in a station. No. It just... Because uh, I'm like, I don't want that running out on... Well, um, here's my final question. Hey, why does Chris Grayling still have a job? <laughs> I think because the Brexit Omni Shambles is still going on. Is that what People it is? haven't noticed him hiding well, in Brexit. And he's unusually doesn't ever want to resign. <laughs> I know. I mean, he just I don't think he's ever resigned. And he's just sort of plodding on. Also, he doesn't run the railways, which he keeps telling everyone. So, I mean, none of these problems are his. But then why, why do we all hate him then? Yeah, well, I mean, in his first year, he, he knocked a cyclist off. With his parliamentary car, oh, <laughs> oh. and then he That's started shouting at the cyclist. That's a transport policy right there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Um, thanks to Nicole, Sarah, and Joel. Any stupid questions was devised and hosted by me, Danielle Ward, and produced by Ed Morris for the internet. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.